now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I wish you guys could see what goes on right before we start talking. Is this inevitably Bill doing some weird hand motions or emojis coming through Skype from Phil or something like that? It's quite entertaining. Got to get fired up for the show. (laughs) Oh, my God. Hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. Uh, I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hi. Hi. Um, before we get started, I'm going to do this one right off the back. You have two weeks. It's two weeks until our live show. Screw everything else. Screw the following, the social media stuff. Two weeks from tonight, uh, we are doing a live show. So that's Wednesday, uh, November 20th at 6.30 p.m. Uh, here in Naperville on North Central's campus. Uh, myself, Bill, Phil will be here in person, as well as both of our, our super guests, uh, Dr. Suzanne Chad, uh, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, our senior legal analyst. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to do a live taping. We're going to take questions. We're going to do what we normally do uh, and just kind of riff a little bit. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So you guys should definitely come. Uh, it's completely free. You can just show up if you want. If you want to share the event with people and uh, help them, you know, ask them to get a, a ticket again, it's completely free. Uh, there's an Eventbrite event uh, that you can go to. Uh, just search for bar, uh, Barstool Politics on Eventbrite. Uh, it'll give you the details, the location, um, all that fun stuff. So, again, you can share it through there just to make it easier. Um, but, yeah, everything is completely free. Um, so please join us. It's going to be great. It's going to be a great time. A lot of fun. Good yeah. conversations. We're going to have some fun topics. Uh, and we're live, right? We'll be live. We're live. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, do that. Anyways, on to the other stuff. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, just search for Barstool Politics. Uh, and then the podcast itself, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, most major podcasting platforms. So. Review us, share us, like us through there. Um, we always appreciate the support. Um, that's everything, yeah. right? Um, we're going to take a little break from the impeachment stuff uh, for the most part. It's kind of hard to completely uh, step away from it. Um, but some interesting uh, polling going on. Uh, we're one year away from the election, so we have some information on that. Um, all kinds of other stuff. Uh, Phil met Bernie, which he looks ever so happy in that picture. Um, and we're going to talk about cleavage. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> That's a good teaser. <laughs> Anyways, Bill, let's uh, let's start with the uh, the polling. So as Nick said, we are officially one year out from the 2020 presidential election. And to celebrate that milestone, the Democrats gave us a whole bunch to talk about this week. 
We saw Beto O'Rourke drop out of the race. Elizabeth Warren spent the week doing damage control for her Medicare for All plan. Bernie Sanders, as Nick said, was hanging out with Phil, but we'll get to that later. Uh, Pete Buttigieg surged in Iowa, and Joe Biden managed to once again rattle everyone's nerves by facing the wrong way while giving a speech in Iowa. The camera's got a wonderful view of the back of Biden's head. Uh, The Buttigieg development is significant as it appears he's trying to seize the middle ground between the liberal Warren and Sanders camp and the more moderate yet extremely shaky Joe Biden. But arguably the most interesting election news of the week was a new poll from the New York Times and Siena College showing that Trump has a clear path to winning a second term. While Trump is broadly unpopular in each of the key battleground states, the story shifts when Trump matches up against the top Democratic contenders. Across the six closest states that went Republican in 2016, he trails Joe Biden by an average of two points among registered voters, but stays within the margin of error and actually leads Elizabeth Warren by two points. Phil, this is going to be an absolutely crazy bonker year. Uh, where Where do you want to start? What should we talk about? Uh, there, uh, there's so much to talk about in, in this. Um, I, I mean, so the first, first off, I, I feel like I should say as, as a comparativist that it's insane that we're a year out and we've already been talking about this election as long as we have. It's crazy that, that America drags these out as much as they do. Uh, it would just be, I, I mean, I suppose there's, uh, there's some advantage to uh, a candidate who can last this long and it gives us a really deep look, but it, how much better would it be if two months before election, <laughs> before the primary election, all the candidates brought out their plans and we had some debates and then we decided that would be uh, anyway. Um, Which other other states do, right? I mean, the, the UK has a right. much, much more narrow window. I mean, and there's there's benefits, absolute benefits. Almost every other that. democracy does this on a like, a you know, a two month, not a two year scale. But anyway, yeah. but we have ratings to think about. I, that's that's right. true. <laughs> and, and money in politics, right. you got to give it time. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, these polls are really interesting. I, so I, we should probably I feel like we should start start with that with with uh, I, because they talk about Trump's reelection chances. And, and later on, we're going to talk about the election last night and how that might feed into it. But, you know, these polls are interesting. Um, there was also an, another poll that came out on the same day that that looked much worse for Trump, where they did battleground polling. And in that one, Elizabeth Warren was the strongest candidate, was beating Trump by the biggest Mm. amounts. But all the Democratic candidates were beating him in these in these uh, uh, battlegrounds. So I I, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I, I think when we think about this election, what's coming up, um, there are, there's, I can think of like two categories, right? There are categories of things that make this, um, an election that's really favorable for Donald Trump, the, the strength of the economy and the stock market. He's an incumbent, um, the, the nature of the electoral college. There've been a number of studies that have come out lately that have shown that, you know, the electoral college as it's currently set up gives Republicans, you know, a, a three or four point advantage, essentially in, in terms of they can lose the national vote by three or four points and still win the electoral college. So there's a lot of stuff going for Trump. On the other hand, right? I mean, he's he's a uniquely unpopular presidential candidate. And and that's the sort of thing that I mean, these polls try to get at I mean, they have to. They're, they're polling people, but in order to sample properly, you have to try to match what you think turnout will be like. So in other words, it's not just calling a random thousand people. You call a thousand people, but then you weight the results based on who you think is actually going to show up to vote. And that's the part where I think it's not that polling is wrong. I think these polls are accurate. They're doing things statistically properly, but 
I think it's hard to predict in an election like this where, where Democrats are really fired up, where Repu- I mean, partisanship on both sides is really strong. I, I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of of these sorts of a, a year out, these kind of battleground uh, polls. I, I think I, I think the expectation or that some people have that Trump is because he's deeply unpopular, that he's going to lose uh, is not right. Um, I think the odds are against him, but I, I don't think that that he, he's you know, it's a certain it's a certain loss for uh, for Donald Trump. I think he has a lot of institutional stuff that is on his side. I think that's an important point because even though, I mean, Trump is just getting hammered on these approval ratings. Somebody's, you know, his approval rating is 41%. He hasn't been able to above 50 in a long time, but that's very different than the state by state polling, which, you know, really does play to his advantage. And we talked earlier that, you know, of those six states that matter, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, some people are talking, it, it literally is going to come down to Wisconsin. Uh, you know, and, and if Trump wins Wisconsin, he's in a really, really strong position. I don't need Wisconsin deciding the presidential no, election. No, I think that's a, that's, <laughs> that is a fair, I am from Wisconsin. I'm not sure whether one state should decide the presidency. Um, yeah, no, I, and, and the, you know, the, I will say it to your point, Phil, the New York Times, I think the pollsters are, have realized they have to get better. You know, in 2016, the national polls were pretty accurate. In terms of the overall turnout, where they struggled was the state by state analysis. And as you pointed out, there, you know, the, the New York Times on the Daily, their podcast, they talked about the challenge of you have to go in and do it state by state. And as you suggested, you got to think about turnout and weighting different turnouts, what groups are going to show up. And, and it gets really, really, really technical. So I, I, I as a as a political scientist and somebody who's interested in politics, I love that there's this abundance of polling or that there's this because of last time, because of failures, there is this attempt to get all of the statewide polling. There's another part of me that kind of laments this, that, that we, I, I feel like we are taking this kind of horse race pundit approach to elections in which we're trying to figure out who's going to win. And we're more focused on that than on thinking about the candidates and, and who we like the best. So I, I see it in the Democratic side where people are trying to weigh all of this stuff about electability and who can beat Trump and all of that. And that's stuff that we don't know. We just, we can't know. So I I, I sort of long for a, a period in which no, no one knows what's going to happen. Yeah. No one has any expectations about what's going to happen. And they go out and they, because they care about it, they listen to candidates, they vote for the candidate they want. And then we see what happens. It feels like we've decided, or there's this like attempt to figure out what's going to happen a year from now. And that is in a lot of ways filtering in to how people are approaching politics, which is backwards, right? It's ass backwards. It shouldn't be that way. (laughs) It is. But if you are a Democrat and you see this poll, you have to be a little worried, right? Uh, The idea that this is going to be a cakewalk and because Trump is unpopular, you're going to win the presidency. No way, right? I mean, so to your point, Phil, if you're you're a Democrat, should you use this data to reevaluate your campaign? So maybe you you love Elizabeth Warren, but you see that there's a chance that she loses. I mean, should that should that weigh on Democrats? I mean, I, I think they've already started doing that. And in, in we've talked about kind of the the ascent of Elizabeth Warren and to some extent uh, Bernie Sanders. And as over the past couple of weeks, you've seen more and more stories about members of her own party, in addition to Republicans and and right leaning media, poking holes in you know Medicare for all and the um, uh, student loan debt forgiveness and policies that don't have a lot of backing to them uh, that 
they're starting to to chip away the not necessarily the fallacies, but the, the lack of detail to them. Uh, and more and more of that dissent seems to be coming from the internal elements of the party. And then when you look at the polling, if you're talking about Warren and and Sanders, Trump seems to be the the margin of um, uh, likelihood that Trump would win compared to the two of them seems significantly higher compared to the margin of Biden winning over Trump. So while I think that the at least the preliminary thing that I that I get out of that is that Warren and Sanders seem to be less likely to become the nominee based off of this polling. And that would I'm just rambling like an idiot right now. Um I, I see this as a kind of an early indication that uh, internal elements within the Democratic Party are going to be pushing more and more towards Biden as opposed to uh, Warren or Sanders based off of polling like this. Yeah. Um, because and, and again, it seems like the uh, the narrative that's coming out of the, the left leaning media and the mainstream media. Um, and again, the Democratic Party seems to be that the policies that the more progressive liberal wing is pushing isn't they're they're not playing well enough mm-hmm. with uh, uh, the you know national audience. Well, you're spot on that there was a bunch of pushback from a lot of Clinton uh, administration officials this week on Elizabeth Warren and her health care plan, uh, which I, it caught me a bit off guard that they were. And I wonder whether it is coming from this motivation to say that we need those candidates to moderate to to move more to the center. Uh, but it's a it's a big deal if you're if you're a Democratic voter thinking about do you want to do you want to push for a burn uh, I'm sorry a Bernie or an Elizabeth Warren or do you want to go with a more safe Biden or Buttigieg or something like that I I mean I guess I think that there there's something of value to so if I'm a if I'm a candidate polling that tells me what people are reacting to positively or negatively is is useful. But at the same time, you have to take into account that people are really fickle, right? People change their mind. I, so right. I follow politics. This is my this is my living. I, I'm fascinated by it. I go see all of these candidates. And even I am surprised that sometimes I, you know, I'll go to one of these events and I'll leave feeling like, oh, I'm kind of excited about that candidate in a way that I wasn't. 30 minutes ago. And, and, you know, I, I care about the issues and all sorts of stuff, but I, you know, people, the idea that we can ask people today how they feel or whether they're going to, you know, vote for Elizabeth Warren versus Joe Biden a year from now seems kind of insane, right? The, the idea, the party should figure out what they stand for, you know, nominate somebody who's in line with that and then go out and sell that idea as opposed to this, I, the, the, the idea that they're constantly trying to get a feel for which way the, the, you know, the population is moving feels like a backwards way to go about this. And it feels, I don't know, maybe self-defeating. I, when I think back, there are lots of very popular, very successful presidential candidates that wouldn't have stood a chance, right? Jo- uh, the fact that JFK was a Catholic was, you know, nobody's going to vote for a Catholic. Nobody's going to vote for a black man, Barack Obama. You know, and so the idea, again, that that somehow people actually know how they're going to react to candidates or the policies, I, I think is... Um, you know, there's something to that, right? You don't want to ignore what people are saying, but I think I feel like people are putting way too much emphasis on this at this point. I saw a poll about whether, I don't know if you saw this, there was a poll this week that came out about whether America is ready for a gay president, right? About Buttigieg. And it was like 50% of Americans thought, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Or, you know, maybe, and 50% were like, absolutely not. And I, I think, well, that I don't, 
that seems irre- irrelevant to some, you know, yeah. whether or not America is ready or not depends on whether America votes for him. But like what a whole bunch sure. of people yeah. think about whether America is ready. I, it, yeah. I don't, I, it feels like we're, we're putting the, the polling ahead of the actual thing that really, like, you know, wait, does that make sense? I, it's yeah. anyway. It does. Yeah. Cause think about give, if you, if you give Elizabeth Warren another six months, I mean, she's an energetic com- campaigner. She is the more you see her, I think what we've seen in, in New Hampshire and elsewhere, the more they like her. Now, the only thing that would worry me a little bit about her is that Iowa, where they've seen a lot of her, they haven't liked her as much. Right. So, the, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see whether her appeal is going to be across the board or whether there's particular states that are going to be drawn to her. Um, one of the things real quick that they talked about in the polling, they asked uh, Democratic voters whether they were whether they wanted a more moderate or more liberal candidate. And it was 74 to 24. They wanted a more moderate candidate. What? Yeah. Um, <coughs> which, you know, it, that's crazy. It's interesting, right? Uh, because you're seeing a lot of these candidates and, and that doesn't mean that the party doesn't move to somebody like Warren or Bernie Sanders. Uh, but, you know, their initial gut reaction is just let's be safe. Let's well, be moderate. I mean, that's one of the problems with our with the way our system is set up, that we have a, a primary first at both sides. Right. You're going to have the the diehards that show up to the Democratic primaries and to the Republican primary. So you're going to have the, you know, the the further left and the further right candidates that that are going to have an advantage in the primary, but they're not necessarily the, you know, the, the ones that, that appeal to the, to the broader base. Uh, but I, I don't, I mean, I guess I still come around to, I, I would like it if people went out and voted for the candidate they like, not the candidate that they think can win. Not that you shouldn't take that into account, but mm-hmm. it feels like there's all this like hedging of, I like this candidate, but I'm not sure that they can win. And so I'm not, if it, it feels group thinky, right? Like if everyone, if the, if the, if yeah, the, yeah. if the common assumption is, well, people don't want to vote for an Elizabeth Warren or people don't want to vote for a Joe Biden, then it becomes a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy as opposed to actually people just going out and voting for who they like. And we'll, that will give us a sense of of who is a, a popular candidate that'll give us a pulse of the electorate if everybody's voting based on what they think other people will find electable then we it just all gets screwed up <laughs> although it's it's slightly different i, mean, I don't know maybe it's not different like when you're talking about donald trump there is there's a there are many voters perceive him as a unique threat right so the the number one job is to make sure he isn't reelected so if that's your number one goal strategic voting is okay. Um, you know, if, if you're thinking about a candidate policy and what you really want uh, out of a politician, Donald, then, I, I, then your Donald Trump is, is also the response to that argument, which is that the idea that we know what people want is, is insane, right? So people, if you're going out and voting based on <laughs> what you think other people will vote for everyone, nobody thought that Donald Trump would actually win, right? And people still turned out and voted for him. So the idea that he's a unique threat and you need to pick someone based on whether they can beat him assumes that you know what can beat him. And and I don't think we know that. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, that's the idea is that, yeah, that no. we can somehow predict how 150 million Americans are going to vote is, is, uh, is not accurate. I mean, I, I think the Democratic Party is going to tell them uh, who, they, who they should vote for in the, in the near future. I mean, it's already kind of playing out. Um, I, I think they've kind of backed themselves into the corner. And this is the inevitable you know, Democrats shooting themselves in the foot when it comes to elections. I think that the polling is going to scare them. They're going to push towards Biden. You're going to have a more moderate candidate who is on shaky ground as it is and is going to have an exceptionally hard time beating Trump mm-hmm. when it comes to a, a, a head on, uh, head-to-head 
competition. I, it's it's going to be really really hard. And the the um, you know the the indicators are already saying that the likelihood of Trump getting a second term at this point is pretty good. So unless you have a strong candidate, which I really don't think Biden is at this point. I, I don't know, guys. You're you're gonna have a real tough time. It's it's why you know. So Pete Buttigieg has has moderated his positions more recently, and I think in some ways that's a really smart thing to do because uh, he wasn't going to get traction further left. I mean, between Bernie and Warren's, they've got that area pretty covered. So he, you know his his sort of centering and talking about civility, it's really really smart. Whereas if Biden has another gaffe that's dramatic, right, he could suddenly emerge as as the moderate candidate. I mean, there's others like Cory Booker. We've talked in the past. I don't get why Cory Booker isn't doing better. Spartacus? If, if there was all this demand for a more centrist candidate. He seems like somebody who would really do – he's dynamic. He would fill that niche. <clears throat> Jesse Smollett. <laughs> so – but I don't know. So it, it's really, really I mean, curious, the other part so. of this that I think is interesting is that I, I saw some numbers today on on Buttigieg. So in Iowa, the, the people who have uh, Pete Buttigieg as their top pick – um, on the polls, they'll ask, you know, what's your second, who's your second candidate? And uh, for Buttigieg, the the two, there's like 25 to 30 percent of, of his voters who have Biden as their second candidate and 25 to 30 percent who have Warren as as their second candidate. Right. So this idea that, that, Interesting. that voters have the, you know, they want a moderate or they want. I, so even even going out and listening, watching people react to candidates here in New Hampshire, I, I think. In that maybe they have this overarching story of I want a moderator, but they're responding to a person. They're going out and, you know, there's something about Elizabeth Warren or about Joe Biden that's appealing to them. I, I'm just not fully convinced that people are actually, you know, 100 percent. I'm I, again, the, the policy differences between Biden and Warren, they're not nothing. But in the grand political spectrum mm-hmm. of things, they're not that far apart, right? Uh, you know, Warren and, and Sanders are closer together than, you know, than Biden. But we're not talking about, you know, communists versus, you know, this is the, they all largely agree that healthcare needs to be, you know, expanded in some way, that there should be greater educational funding. That, I mean, the, on the on the core principles, they're largely the same. And that's where I'm, I, I think when when people get into this notion of a, a, a moderate is more electable or liberals more electable, and that's what they should go for. I think it's, I, I, it feels like they're overthinking it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> go ahead. I was just, one thing that stood out in the poll where they were talking about, they were focusing in on an Elizabeth Warren that I thought was interesting is, is there were two elements that scared voters off. One was her ideology. They felt that she was too far left and that's not surprising. The other was that she was a woman. So there was a category that they asked, "Do are the women candidates not likable? And she did poorly in that, right? Which is to suggest that gender is certainly going to matter. Wait, did they, was it phrased where all female candidates were unlikable or those particular female there candidates? Was, they asked, so that was the question. And then you could you could mark which ones. And so Warren was marked as, as not likable. Uh, and I think okay. it's interesting because I think there's going to be division where some people really, really like her. And you're seeing already that for her candidacy, one of these struggles, which was a similar struggle for Hillary Clinton, is that as a woman, she's going to be perceived as unlikable, even though Warren is, strikes me as very, very likable, right? I mean, some, we could have discussion about whether it's authentic or not, but she seems likable. Oh, absolutely. Her policies are just bad. <laughs> right, but, but that's yeah. different, right? So there's this ideology and the gender dynamic that are both going to be hurdles 
for her moving there are, I mean, there are polls that, that show that, that, like, just like the number of people who say that America is not ready for, uh, or the, the number of people who won't. In fact, I, I wish I had, I wish I had known you had brought that up because I, w- I, I could have looked it up. There was a recent poll where they asked people about, you know, what are the categories for which you would never vote for a person? And I want to say that, that being a woman was as high a score as being gay, right? That they were, that they were voters who essentially I'm not, mm-hmm. I would never vote for someone who fell into this category. And that, that surprised, I mean, in some ways it's, it surprised me that it was that, that those two were equal. It didn't surprise me that there was a large chunk of people who, who said they wouldn't vote for a right. woman. It's still, it's still a dramatic hurdle the, for, I, for a female candidate how much to, of that to win office. Sh- this is a, again, an example of where it, it feels like people are maybe getting into their, <laughs> into their heads, right? So if you, if you're a democratic voter and you're not going to vote for Elizabeth Warren, because you worry that there are voters that won't vote for a woman, that to me seems like overthinking it. Because if you're a voter who doesn't want to vote for a woman, the odds that you're going to get on board with, you know, Cory Booker, <laughs> or Bernie Sanders seem pretty small, right? If you think a woman should never be president, you're probably, you know, not 100%, but there's probably a pretty darn good, if I had to place bets, I would feel pretty safe betting that you're going to vote Trump, right? So I, the, the idea that that's the the way you're going to sort of convolute yourself into nominating someone seems, I, I don't know, it seems problematic. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you think about it's it's thinking about the categories who might vote that way, right? I think there's if you are a slightly conservative uh, who is not a doesn't like Trump, but you're also worried about Elizabeth Warren, you might vote for Joe Biden. You might say like, hey, I don't like Trump. This Biden guy's all right, but I can't I can't tolerate Elizabeth Warren. And I I think there's a, a pretty good pretty large chunk of voters in that category who. Mm-hmm. If, if the Democrats give a moderate candidate, they might vote. But if they go with a Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, so they might a, be turned off. This is an off. era in which Democrats are really worked up, right? I mean, they're, they're fired up. Um, yeah. Th- this is that trade-off that has to be discussed because there is an – yeah, you're right. If you nominate a Joe Biden, you potentially pick up people who are disillusioned with Trump. But how many people on the other end do you lose who are really fired up? I mean, mm-hmm. I've talked to people at uh, the um, at, at some of these uh, Democratic events who have basically said, like, I'm I'm not going to sell my soul right to to pick an electable candidate. I'm going to vote for it. So, uh, you know, if it's Bernie Sanders or if it's the one or there was one guy I talked to who was like, I'm voting either Bernie Sanders or Tulsi Gabbard. And if the Democrats don't nominate one of them. I'm going to go third party. So there's this, you know, there's this mentality mm-hmm. of you could go Joe Biden, but do you lose that enthusiasm uh, on the, you know, from young voters, right? Young voters are, are fired up right now in a way that they haven't been in the past. And I feel like you throw Joe Biden on the ticket and they're not going to be so fired up. So how do you as a Democrat navigate that sort of counter that back and forth? And that's where I think you can't predict that in some ways. And and so to try to predict it or try to choose a candidate based on that is where I think you maybe get yourself in trouble. Especially given how much turnout matters, right? This election 2020 is going to hinge on whether Democrats can turn out a lot of voters. You know, Trump is doubling down on his base. So he's going to be trying to turn out, turn out white working class voters. Uh, yeah. And does Joe Biden inspire people? No. Mm-hmm. You, if, if that's the case, if it's Biden, you have to hope that that hatred of Trump is enough to turn Democrats out, that they they may not love Biden, but they boy, they hate Trump. And that's pretty uh, that's pretty. That's nice. <laughs> oh. 
We're assuming you all heard <laughs> that. That's Bill's fault. <laughs> Come on, Bill. Be professional, Bill. Yes. Come on. <laughs> uh, um, I, I mean, I, I guess the question I have is, you were talking about it, Bill, that 70%, was it 70% of people that were polled or Democrats that were polled were looking for a more moderate candidate to compared to a more liberal progressive candidate? Uh, so I, I, who, which segment would you lose more potential voters for? If you go moderate, would you lose more left wing, you know, progressive voters? Or if you go left wing, mm -hmm. are you going to lose more progressive voters? My thing thought is that if you go farther towards the left, you're going to lose a lot more voters than you would if you went with Biden. But realistically, it's still going to come down to that contest between him and Trump. Mm -hmm. And I think he's going to get trounced. I, like, I, I just don't think there's any way around it. It's, it's 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 precarious, right? And there's there is it's exciting to think about the Democrats going for a candidate that they they're enthusiastic about. Uh, it, it Biden seems, is a fallback. Hope and change, well, man. I mean, that it wins seems elections. Like, well, this is where I think back to what you were talking about. The, a Cory Booker or somebody like that is sort of surprising, and that it's unfortunate that the the candidates that seem to be sort of charismatic. So I think of the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders. Like when I see their rallies or their events, there's a different feel than there is at a, a Joe Biden or an Amy Klobuchar event. It, it's unfortunate for the Democrats in some ways that there's not a more moderate candidate that is that kind of, you know, get the people fired up. Now, and I don't know if that's the personalities of the candidates or if that's the stuff they're saying, right? It, I think it very well could be the platforms, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the, there's something about the Bernie Sanders uh, and Elizabeth Warren, like we're tired of this shit, right? We're not going to play this game anymore. The whole system is corrupt. That is part of what is firing people up, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Should we talk beers? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a quick <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> Yeah, so Phil, I'm drinking a, a beer from Resilience uh, uh, from this is uh, out of Littleton, uh, New Hampshire. Um, so they they have a, a I've had a number of their beers before and, I, and I've, I've liked them. This is Schilling Beer Company, actually. So Resilience is the line of beers from Schilling Beer Company. And they have a, a, an IPA that is called Hopweave that I've had before and that I, I liked. Uh, and a couple of their beers, they've started producing double dry hopped versions of. And this is their double dry hopped Hopweave. And I, we were talking before about what in the world double dry hop means. Uh, and it sounds like from my, mm -hmm. my research, it's, uh, it's not exactly a, a specifically defined term. But, but basically, after they've done the, you know, on the cold part of the brewing, after they've done the, they, they throw extra hops in. And with double dry hopping, they either do that twice or they do twice the amount of hops. It doesn't matter. The end result is that this excessive. is a really good beer. I really like this. Um, I don't, you know, I've said before on here that, uh, you know, when the IPAs get really in your face, like the hoppiness is like over the top, I, I, it kind of pushes me away. Um, this is really hoppy, but it's real smooth. It's not bitter. It's not, uh, it's not, it's, it's really enjoyable. Like you get all the hoppy flavors that I like. Um, but it, in a, in a really pleasant, it's, it's just a really good beer. I, I, I've, I thoroughly enjoyed this. That's, that's yeah. a strong review from Barker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Nick, Nick, what are we enjoying? We are having a, a South cider, uh, Chicago style lager from uh, tribes, which, uh, you know, uh, right there on the South side in uh, Mokina, Illinois. It seems like, um, <laughs> it seems like South cider <laughs> should be a cider. They missed a real opportunity there. I think. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to talk to the cider people. All right. 
that's a good idea. Um, whenever you see something that's either South Side or it's a Chicago style anything, just think, yeah, all right. So you made old style and slapped your own label on it. That's, that's what great. we thought. We were, like, we oh, thought. were getting old style. Yeah. yeah. And realistically, when we first poured it, it, it smells very much like, like old style. But it's actually it's pretty crisp. Um, it, it's not at all like, a, you know, a, a, a mainstream kind of standard lager Pilsner thing. Um, yeah, not a lot of, um, sweetness or bitterness. It's just very smooth. There's not a lot of head to it. Um, fairly clear, just a tiny bit cloudy. Um, but yeah, like I said, really, really smooth. So I, I actually enjoyed it. I did too. And, and I think it's, it almost is. It's not a pale ale, but it has, I mean, as, as you look at it, it's a little thicker than your normal lager, uh, and it has more oomph to it, too. I really, I really liked it. Yes. Um, yeah, this is a, that's a dar- it's a darn good beer. Yeah, start selling this at Comiskey. Yeah, okay with that. much better. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if you guys want to check out the beers we have on the podcast, uh, like I said at the beginning, uh, find us on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there, uh, and you will find all of our reviews. Time for some speed round. Mm-hmm. All right. So Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has found himself under pressure as he attempts to walk a tightrope between President Trump and his State Department staff. Pompeo is facing a revolt in the State Department as confidence in his leadership has plummeted. Career officials have accused him of abandoning veteran diplomats who have been attacked by Trump and letting the president's personal political agenda infect foreign policy. Recently, Pompeo publicly supported Trump's largely discredited theory that Ukraine, not Russia, attacked the Democratic National Committee. It was also Pompeo who helped Trump and Rudy Giuliani oust American ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yanovich. 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 Man, I was practicing <laughs> that in April. Multiple senior department officials have testified uh, that Pompeo refused to defend her, uh, and even after accusations of help. Uh, this week, we learned that Yanovich. Got at that time in her testimony said that she was told by another official that Pompeo or someone around him, quote, was going to place a call to Mr. Hannity on Fox News to figure out what was going on. Phil, it appears that Pompeo, Rudy Giuliani and Sean Hannity are running U.S. foreign policy. Should our listeners be happy or sad about that? <laughs> so, I, In general, sad, but but with some caveats, I, I, this is this is kind of an interesting question. Uh, you know, Pompeo. Uh, we, I don't know. I feel like we have sort of forgotten Pompeo's history in which he was in the house and he was, you know, a sort of a, he was one of the pretty far out there guys. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a duality here. There's a, there's a tension here in which, um, the president should be able to set foreign policy. It's one of the powers that's largely given to him and that bureaucrats, people who work in the state department should be doing what the president, you know, is, is setting. So, in most other situations, if if you know the idea of a secretary of state doing what the president wants and putting together a foreign policy that the president wants would make sense. And that's how we want it to go. You want the bureaucrats to be doing what the president wants. This is the <laughs> situation in which what the president is pursuing is again, troubling. Um, I, you know, I'm more troubled by the, the fact that Sean Hannity plays a role in this or that Rudy Giuliani plays a role in this. Um, that's the, that's the real, I, I, I'm troubled by, by Pompeo for a number of reasons. I, am just troubled by the Trump administration's attempts to sort of dismantle the state department and, and their sort of skeptical view of, of, uh, diplomacy. You know, the, one of the things that came out was that Jovanovic was encouraged, I think by 
Pompeo, maybe by someone else, to tweet out support of Trump, right? That, that those sorts of things yes. are troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I go back and forth between, I, in general, the direction of foreign policy under Donald Trump and the way that he's doing this is 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 troubling to me. The inclusion of his personal attorney and a Fox News host is really troubling to me. But at the same time, I also the idea that that bureaucrats would be able to sort of run independent of the president would also be troubling to me. So I, I'm not sure exactly how I how I come down on mm-hmm. that. Nick. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is this is a tough one. In, in terms of the Hannity thing, my understanding was that Pompeo was supposed to contact Hannity, who was putting information regarding Ukraine being involved in in the uh, the uh, uh, Democratic uh, National Committee hacking. Um, was going to ask Hannity uh, if he had any actual actionable information on it, and if he didn't, to cut the shit out. Yeah. Um, regardless, if you're calling a, a a cable news host and asking him if he has actionable information on something, that's a little bit suspect. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a conversation that we've been having for months, if not years at this point, that um, as much as, uh, to your point, Phil, you know, the, the president should be able to, to set his own foreign policy. And to some extent, the the, the secretary of state should follow that. Um, this he he just doesn't seem qualified to handle that. This is a, an example of of the the adults have kind of left the room. And yeah, he's his his past has been somewhat checkered i would say um yeah just the 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 confluence of everything that we've seen over the past uh few months in addition to stuff that's coming out of the uh impeachment inquiry seems to just show a person who's not necessarily up to thinking about the 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 uh rigorous nature that this particular position holds um and that's that's more recent and what's interesting i think you're right is that he started out as one of the adults in the room. I mean, he's, you know, he was in Congress, he went to the CIA, then he came to State Department. And early on, uh, it sounded like State Department officials were happy that he was trying to revitalize the the organization. And it's it's as if he just had to make that decision, you know, do I do what's right for the State Department? Or do I do what's right for Donald Trump? And it feels like as time has gone by, he's embraced Trump more than the job to be the Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, I think, you know, this is you raised a good question, Phil. The president does have the right to dictate foreign policy, but he doesn't have the right to dictate policy right. for his own personal interest. And it feels like the State Department is being used, especially as we're hearing through the impeachment inquiry, to pursue Trump's personal interest. And that's a place where right. the secretary of state <laughs> should be pushing back. And it feels like he's not in those areas. He's, you know, he's on board with the with the Ukraine conspiracy theory and other elements where he knows better. I mean, he's a you know, he's a smart guy. He's a West Point graduate. He, he should he knows what he's doing and he knows that it's yeah, problematic. I, I, I think about Graham. I, I think about Graham Allison. So Graham Allison, you know, who talks about the making of mm-hmm. foreign policy, one of his big models of understanding foreign policy gets at this idea that people like Pompeo are playing multiple roles, right? He is both an advisor to the president. One of his jobs is to help the president and to be part of the president's cabinet. He he is on Trump's team. But another one of his roles is to advocate for and to be the essentially the CEO of the State Department. And, and this is an example where oftentimes they, you know, a lot of times you can do both of those jobs. You can be an advisor to the president and the top diplomat without so much tension. And, and 
this is an example with Pompeo where there's a lot of tension, right? If you're going to do what's best for the State Department, then it, you can't be doing what Donald Trump wants. And and yeah, he's been forced to choose. I, I am disappointed that he's sort of chosen the way that he's he's chosen. But um, yeah, I mean, this is the, the age we live in, right? With the nature of Trump as president, I think. And, and the degree to which Trump is able to erode and wear yeah. down those around him, right? I mean, Pompeo is, is, is no little weakling, right? I mean, he, he's, he has heft in terms of being a politician and doing his job. And we see that a lot of these guys crumble around Trump. It's- I, I mean, we, we talk about that so often that these people are just influenced or, or, or manipulated by Trump so effectively. At some point, not all of that can be true. Some of them have to right. be believers in the For policies sure. that they're mm-hmm. pushing. Yeah. The power of the, the president, the executive branch in general, it all cannot be Trump. So I, I don't know where that balance is or yeah. you know what where that tipping point is, but it, you, not everything can can go back to Trump. He's not that big of a genius. He's a genius. Well, you're, you're, not I mean, that you're big right. Of right? The, the people either have their their principles either line up with Trump's or their principles aren't that strong. Right. So what, either way, I mean, in some ways, mm-hmm. it has to right. do with it's, the people around him. Um, it, it's not just purely right. that Trump yeah. is great at this. It's the people around him either agree with him or uh, or or you know lack a backbone. The allure of power is strong. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next topic. Uh, back to election talk. So there were some significant statewide elections on Tuesday that left Democrats celebrating and Republicans worried about 2020. While the uh, while the race for governor in Kentucky is still too close to call, the Democrat uh, leads the Republican, uh, Matt Bevin, 49.2% to 48.8%. Uh, if the Democratic Bashir holds on, this will be a notable victory for Democrats in a pretty darn red state. In Virginia, Democrats have won majorities in both the House and the Senate, giving the party full control of the state's government and solidifying what had once been a swing state uh, and at another point had been strongly Republican. Another disturbing trend for Republicans last night is that Democrats continued their steady march in converting suburban America into a political stronghold. Uh, Republicans salvaged the night by holding on to the Mississippi governorship. Uh, Phil, we spent a good time in our opening topic looking at why the Democrats should be worried about 2020. But do the results from last night offer a different interpretation? I, I mean, I think this comes back around to what I was what I was saying is that some of the polling depends on on an accurate prediction of who's going to turn out. And 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 that's where I, this is. I, this is interesting. I mean, if you look at Kentucky, I mean, Kentucky was a state that that Trump won by 30 points, right? I mean, it was 65 to 35 or something like that. I mean, it was a dramatic victory for Trump. So for a Republican governor to lose after that, and after Trump did a rally there the night before the election is pretty shocking. Now, he was a deeply unpopular uh, governor from from my understanding, right? I mean, he <laughs> yes, was, yes, it sounds yes. like he was kind of an ass. Um, it sounds like he was, and you know, he was pretty Trumpian in some ways, like attacking the impeachment. And, and he really, I mean, the part that's interesting is that he did in some ways kind of tie himself to Trump at, at the end. And that was not enough to put him over the top. So, I, I mean, I think there's danger in reading too much into a single election. I think of all the information, I mean, Virginia going uh, uh, Democratic is is really interesting. That's a trend. You know, if you look, I look back prior to Barack Obama, um, there had Virginia had only voted for one Democratic candidate for president 
since Harry Truman. So they voted once for LBJ. Wow. Uh, but other, otherwise, it's been Republicans across the board until, you know, uh, 12 years ago. So I, I think that reveals sort of a, a transition or a trend that is occurring there. And I think you can sort of put a little more weight on that. Um yeah, with 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 Kentucky, I I don't I don't really know, but I do think one of the things that's worth noting, and one of the things that popped up in Kentucky and Virginia and Mississippi, sort of all over the place, was the shift amongst suburban voters and and, and amongst you know women, and and I think th- those are the sorts of things that um, will make a difference. If that carries over a year from now, then the, the Democrats' chances are, I think, really good. I, th- I think, again, a year from now, I think we could end up with a Democratic landslide. We could end up with Trump getting reelected. And it, but, but some of these, yeah. I, I think it really is, we're in a, in a political era that is really sort of unprecedented. And so all the polls and the pundits are trying to make sense of something that I think is hard to predict. I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nick, you were going to say something about the quality of, of Mike uh, Matt Bevin as a governor of He's, Kentucky. He was historically <laughs> unpopular, yes. maybe the most unpopular governor in the state's history. Um, no, I, I think Democrats still need to be significantly worried about it. We're talking about Kentucky where Trump won, what was it, over uh, by 30 points yeah. or something. Um, that, that means almost nothing to me. And the fact that it was that close with such an unpopular governor, it, it just it I, I think that's a wash at that point. Um, in terms of Virginia, to me, that just seems like the, the strategy of the Democrats to continue to push people into uh, or focus on urban areas and specifically urban elite areas that are highly focused or, or um, dependent on government policies or programs uh, to to keep them solidified within the Democratic Party. And that's a trend that we've been seeing since the, the Obama administration, where every, you know, it, it's been happening in, in Illinois for how many decades at this point. So the fact that you have a massively or a, a massive um, government expansion in D.C., which brings in more I would say overly educated uh, elite individuals into an hey, area that are going to vote Democratic anyways. Yeah, you know, here, that's, that's <laughs> damn. Yes. Um, I, I think that's that's the strategy that they're going to go with. And it's going to bite them in the ass when it comes to uh, the actual election. Um, and then I, I, I this is our original conversation. We're still a year out. And when we're talking about suburban uh, suburban voters with enough time to temper their expectations and understand who the Democrats are or who the, the Democrats was well, mm-hmm. Freudian slip, um, who the candidates are uh, and to really think about what the potential outcomes of their or what their vote could mean. Um, I think we're going to see a slide back in the other direction. Um you know, yeah. not, not, not long from now. It's, it's, you know, I think now, the, the one thing I would say about Virginia <laughs> is that this didn't happen overnight. This was a, this was a, a fairly long-term strategy by the Democrats. Uh, and, and, you know, Virginia is a Southern state, right? So this is, this is a significant thing. doesn't mean that Texas is going to flip tomorrow, but it does suggest to Democrats that if you are persistent, you put good candidates out there, you make an argument, um, you know, Things can happen for a party, and that even though everything feels locked down, there are there is a and, there are and Democrats have started investing in some of those. I mean, for years the Democratic Party yeah. basically had mm-hmm. just written off a bunch of states, and so they they've they've stopped mm-hmm. doing that, which is which is uh, smart. Uh, so let me I, and and with no, Demi- no, what, what were you going to say? I was going to change the. 
I was just going to say, and, and demographic change across the country just should embolden Democrats to do more of that because those opportunities are going to continue to so, grow. So, you know, the governor was deeply unpopular. And, and I've seen people draw parallels then to, I mean, what's coming up next year is that you have two deeply unpopular candidates on the ballot in Kentucky who are Mitch McConnell, who is the least popular. He's got like 30 some odd percent support in Kentucky. So in Kentucky, he's really unpopular. Um, so Mitch McConnell is deeply unpopular. And then Donald Trump is not not I don't know that you, I don't know if I would say deeply unpopular, but, you know, he's, you know, 40 percent approval. Uh, the governor of Kentucky had, what, 30 some odd percent approval. or So you, they're both unpopular candidates. So can we draw conclusions or can we can we infer anything from that? I, I, I'm tempted to think that a presidential year plays out differently than a, than an off year election. Right. Mm-hmm. So people are, are voting differently when they're thinking about president. But. There are some potential warning signs for Mitch McConnell and for Donald Trump. And, I, I, you know, I'm not going to go out on a limb and predict that Donald Trump's going to lose Kentucky. Uh, but, you know, I, this seems to indicate that maybe it's a possibility. It will also depend on who the Democrats run. And we talked a lot about the Republican candidate, but this uh, who's the guy's uh, Andy Bashir, the, the Democrat. Uh, he is anti-abortion. He's pro guns. I mean, so he is a conservative Democrat. Right. Uh, that's I mean, you, that's how you win in Kentucky. You don't run uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. No, you are. But you, you don't understand. run Joe Biden either in that situation. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think. I think, as you said earlier, Phil, there's a chance that this is a landslide. It's also a chance that Trump Trump wins. Uh, and a number of these states will be really, really fascinating to watch. Kentucky, Texas, North Carolina, you know, do those move at all? Or are they still still stuck? No. Mm-hmm. All right. It's time for Phil's campaign corner. Let's Yay. get to it. So this is one of our favorite segments, Phil's campaign corner. Phil has been tirelessly hitting the campaign trail in New Hampshire to bring our listeners an up to the minute look at the presidential campaign. This last week, Phil spent some time with Bernie Sanders. Now, I think it's important to, that our listeners know that after the event, Phil took a picture with Bernie. In the picture, Phil looks young, vibrant and happy. <laughs> Bernie looks like he'd rather kiss an angry mule than be taking this picture with Phil. Was he gritting his teeth or is that a smile? He, he's pretty <laughs> happy <laughs> so Phil, bernie appears to have made a rapid recovery from his heart attack what did you take away from your up close look at sanders and the, and the broader campaign uh so <laughs> so uh so a couple of points I, the, the the actual event right was in energetic bernie supporters are fired up i mean they are passionate when he came out on i mean it, it was it was interesting to see he he brought a you know a band with him and not just any band right so dispatch who i know a lot of listeners probably don't know who that is but dispatch is like you know he's like an actual notice you know no a uh, relatively well-known band comes out and does their opening act. Like it felt more rally like than other events that I've, I've been to by the time Bernie came out. I mean, it was, the crowd was fired up and Bernie on stage was everything you would expect Bernie to be. I, he, in those moments, I think he, he is effective there in ways that he can't be, even in a debate, right, when he's like limited to a certain period of time, when he can get up and just, you know, go off on some issue, he's really good at bringing in, you know, personal stories and to talk about the, the you know, the big systemic issues at play. Um, the crowd ate it up. My students really liked it. Like, I, I, I understand why people get excited about Bernie Sanders when you see him in person. And then afterwards, I got, I got pulled out to, to have because I did my normal introduction thing. And, and, and afterwards, there was a chance to take a picture with him. 
Uh, so I went out to take a picture and it was raining and he comes out after, I mean, he went on for a while, so I, I missed the end of his event, but he came out afterwards and they had everyone lined up. Like you're, you get your picture first and then number two, three, four, five. And he was, I mean, he was ready to be done. He didn't want, like I, I got out of line to take a picture of one of my students and the idea that I was going to get back in line and get a picture with him, he wanted none of it. If his wife had not been there, I would not have gotten a picture. She made him. <laughs> He was so ready to be done. And, and it's an interesting thing. I mean, part of part, part of what I kind of think is, is worth talking about, you know, I, I kept saying to people afterwards, Bernie is very much about the people in the abstract, right? Like he's a big picture guy. He's about principles. He's about the system. He's about, you know, what that means for the individual person. But he doesn't, he is no Elizabeth Warren. He's not going to line up and take your pictures. He wants to go home. He wants to focus on, and and again, you know, it's just two weeks after he has a heart attack or whatever. And and at some at some point that affected me. Like I, I left kind of, I don't know, maybe a little grumpy about the interactions. And then afterwards I thought, why should I give a, why should I give a shit? Like, why should I care? I don't, being nice is not necessarily the, the top can, like attribute that I want in a president, right? We react to that. But in the end, you know, is he going to be effective? Is he going to get things done? I, I don't I don't know. I mean, maybe that's maybe his like curmudgeonliness is part of his appeal. I, I, what, I mean, what do you think? Donald Trump's not nice. Right. And, you know, pe- you know, people still but like he's him. personable. <laughs> that's true. You're right. He is very personable. I think that's part of the reason that people like him. That's why you get 20,000 people at a rally. Yeah. Um, I, I think the people in the abstract thing is is interesting because as much as we talk about the policies and, and the way that they could potentially run the federal government and the country, um, there is still that that concept of would you have a beer with this guy? Mm-hmm. I would certainly rather have a beer with Donald Trump over Bernie Sanders, purely based off of that picture <laughs> and your description of that interaction. Um, and that does weigh on people to some extent. Um, is it right? Probably not. But When someone is is disconnected personally uh, and they're still trying to make policies that influence people on a day to day basis, it doesn't really sit well with me. You know, it it brings us back to something, Phil, you were talking about a few weeks ago about, you know, what is the role of the president? And we talked about that. We judge all of these candidates on their policies and their platforms, and none of them are going to be implemented. Right. That's president. That's different than being a member of Congress. And I wonder about that with Bernie. Like he's really good on the issues. He knows his issues. He he pushes them hard. That's a different role than being president of the United States, where you've got to make hard choices and deliberate and compromise and try to find you know, ways forward. I don't know if Bernie's disposition lends well to that office, even though, even though I think you're right, he's passionate and people love him. Uh, and, and you could even agree with many of his issues, right? I, I just wonder how he would, how he would play out as president. Cause you can't be well, grumpy. I, I, you know, that, that I totally get that. But work. the counter to that also is that if you're going to be an effective manager, maybe being nice is not necessarily the like if you're going to be the CEO of the government, true. then being sort of a, I'm not going to put up with any bullshit. I don't have time for this. I'm going to focus on the maybe there's something about that personality that actually is more effective in that in that position. I, this is, again, where we have this weird thing in America where we have fused the sort of ceremonial role with the the kind of CEO role. And in 
some ways it would be really nice if we could break them apart and put someone who's like a really effective manager in as the executive and somebody who we all love and get excited about as the, you know, the head of state, the, the sort of ceremonial figure that throws out first pitches and kisses babies and, and presides over a Fourth of July parade. This attempt to sort of do both, I think, just kind of muddies the waters in some ways. Man, if only we had someone who could run the country like a business. That would be God. That would be interesting. What was the uh, What was the attendance like? I think you, you yeah, said it was, there was, it was fairly well attended, right? Was it Was it Elizabeth? Yeah, so Warren it was inside instead of outside. So there was a limit to the number of people who could get in. I, I think the Elizabeth Warren people. I think Elizabeth Warren had about a thousand people here, but it was outside. Uh, and I think Bernie had like eight fifty, eight hundred fifty people. So I mean, it was packed. It was you know the Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> One of the fascinating things is comparing the the uh, supporters, you know, Elizabeth Warren's people, they show up real early. Bernie Sanders people, they strolled in. It seemed that they strolled in right before it started. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's sort of very similar numbers. And this is I mean, this is. You know, we're in southwest New Hampshire. We're fairly liberal. Um, this part of the state, the state as a whole is pretty divided, but this part of the state's pretty liberal. And we border just, you know, 20 minutes to the south is Massachusetts, which is, uh, you know, which is Elizabeth Warren territory. 20 minutes west of here is Vermont and you get into Bernie Sanders territory. So I, I think when both of those candidates come, they're not only drawing from this part of the state, they're drawing from kind of outlying areas as well. Uh, I mean, those are going to be the, the Warren and Sanders. One of those is going to win this area of, of New Hampshire. And and that's apparent in the rallies. It, it will be really – New Hampshire is going to be fun. But Iowa is going to be really interesting for those two candidates as well, right? So you're right. They'll, they'll do well in New Hampshire. But will it translate yep. to Iowa? And, and South Carolina we as we move states, forward. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Yes. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Where, where Biden will be really strong. All right, this final one's going to be fun, Nick. So our final topic was suggested by a listener who shared a thoughtful article from the Washington Post this week on the state of democracy in the United States. The article noted that our, quote, once run-of-the-mill partisan competition has been replaced by a disagreement over democracy itself. The author argues that we've entered a new phase in politics where Democrats and Republicans are not just at odds over policy, but over the very foundations of our constitutional order. What's really exciting is that political scientists have a term for this, and it's called regime cleavage, Nick. That's great. Uh -huh. uh, it refers to the division within a population marked by conflict over the foundations of the governing system itself. In societies facing a regime cleavage, a growing number of citizens and officials believe that the norms, institutions, and laws may be ignored, subverted, or replaced. The impeachment inquiry stands as a perfect example of severe regime cleavage that has taken over U.S. politics. The article notes that, quote, an emerging regime cleavage in the United States brought on by, the, uh, by President Donald Trump and his defenders could signal that the American public might lose faith in the electoral process altogether or incentivize elected officials uh, to mount even more direct attacks on the independence of the judiciary and the separations of power. Phil, it's not surprising that political scientists are on top of this. We're on top of most <laughs> things. Um, what's your read of whether the author is correct to suggest that the U.S. democracy is stuck in a serious regime cleavage? Uh, so first of all, uh, you know, I should say hi to Parker who sent this in. Parker's one of my students from from years ago mm -hmm. when I taught at Centenary. So uh, th this is I, I think this is really a fascinating uh topic. So I think that I think that we are at risk of this. I don't think we're there yet, but I think there's lots of evidence that the partisanship is not just about policy anymore. It's about sort of the structure of society or the structure of government. And and that is 
of concern, right? It's not that, that everyone sort of agrees on the ground rules, but disagrees about policy. It feels like the, the disagreement has filtered down to the ground rules. And, and that is what's dangerous. You know, uh, my Jack, my son, had an article assigned for his high school civics class, which I thought was fascinating, which brought in political science literature. And it, and it talked about how when you look at the erosion of democracy in countries like Poland or Turkey, like the places where there has been this shift away from democracy, part of what has happened is that people become disillusioned with the 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 way that democracy, with the particular iteration of democracy. So they're frustrated with the Polish constitution or the Turkish constitution or who has been in power. But rather than focusing on the flaws in the system, they focus on the larger idea of democracy. So, And I feel like that's happening a little bit in the US. People who get frustrated with the electoral college or frustrated with essentially the way the system is, is playing out, rather than talking about changing the way we do politics in the United States, it's easier to talk about democracy as the problem. And I see Donald Trump fitting in with that in some ways, right? There's That's kind of part of what populism is about. It's about corruption and all of this other stuff. And the solution isn't necessarily to fix those issues. It's to kind of push back against democratic rule in general. Um, and as I see that happening, that's really concerning, right? Because then it becomes a, a, an argument not about who should be in power, but about how we should rule. And, and so I don't think we're there yet, but I do think we're right to be concerned about some of the signs and symptoms that, that have emerged over the past few years, which is also why I don't think Donald Trump has brought this on. I think he's a manifestation of this division that's been playing out in American society. Mm-hmm. Nick, you're nodding your head. Yes. Uh, and I, Phil said it and you were nodding We your agree. Head. Oh, this is a good moment. <laughs> I agree on most things. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's the where we are currently is is concerning just because it it seems unique uh, to our point in history. I, when we when we talk about the breakdown of, of democracies and the erosion of, of the, the liberal democratic order uh, worldwide, um, I, I think, you know, I'll, I'll bring in American exceptionalism in, in this one. I, I do think that there is an exceptional nature to the way that we conduct ourselves. And uh, you, you brought it up to, to some extent that um, it seems like populism or the thought that the system as it exists today, both from a, a left and, and, and right uh, leaning perspective, either perspective, um, we all agree that the system is is pretty fucked up and something needs to drastically change. Um, I think that the the culpability of that isn't necessarily or or the uh, the animosity isn't coming directly from the population. It's coming more from the levers of, of government and, and the media as opposed to the population itself. And that exacerbates the issue or appears to exacerbate it more than it actually is. Um, when we don't have the opportunity to look at those mechanisms, the thought of doing a constitutional convention or changing amendments or updating amendments or doing anything that would actually change those levers of power, that's not even that's never brought into the conversation in a real way where we could have influence over the system and make those changes. It's that, you know, polling says this and these people are trying to put these policies through and you don't want that. And, and uh, you know, we can't elect this guy. I don't care who you vote for, but we need to get this motherfucker off or out of the author out of office, quote, uh, unquote. I forgot which candidate said that. Um, I think all of them <laughs> I, at yeah. some point or another. about all of them, too. But yeah. I, I think that we're still if you talk to people just uh, on a one to one basis, there's not 
a lot. There's not nearly as much division as there appears to be um, uh, from a, a more meta, you know, national level. Um, it it worries me that we could potentially fall into that trap. Um, but I, I don't I don't think that we're even close to there. And if we were given the opportunity to change those mechanisms, I think we would jump at it and we would have an opportunity to make real significant change. If there's if there's any good news, and I think both of you made some really strong points here, it's I don't think we disagree over the nature of democracy or or the government itself. I think we if we sat people down and said, Do you still like the way the government is structured? Most people would agree with democracy. They're just not happy with the results of that system, right? So mm-hmm. I think it's it's it, I don't know if it's more an identity dynamic than it is the democracy itself, right? You're you're hap- you're not happy that the other side has won, that the other side got that position on the Supreme Court. It's not that you're upset with the rules; you're mad that th- you lost this time. Um, that being said, that can quickly slide into lack of faith in the institutions themselves, and we see it occurring. I think Donald Trump is particularly culpable of this. He attacks these institutions all of the time, but Democrats do as well, right? I mean, they talk about the Supreme Court and how we could change the Supreme Court for political advantage. And I don't know. I mean, you guys are right that there's nothing wrong with revisiting the structure of the system, but you have to be careful that it doesn't fall into those sure. partisan lines. Absolutely. It has uh, to be even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there is, I know I, I really, I really worry about this uh, moving forward. How do we move past Donald Trump? Yeah. Somebody, uh, somebody characterized the political divisions. I, I forget who this was. Somebody recently I saw characterized the, the shift from, we don't view people across the aisle as rivals anymore. We view them as enemies, right? So it's a, this is a, this is a shift. And because when it's a rivalry, right, we disagree we're going to compete. Uh, but we all sort of agree on the game plan. Um, but, but when you're, when you view it as an enemy, then the stakes are, are, are raised. Right. And, and, and that's where, you know, you talk about how uh, people, most people aren't mad about the rules, but I, I see that changing, right? I mean, it's where, when you get into issues of corruption and all sorts of other stuff, people start to abandon the rules, right? This is where the norms start to erode. So whether it is Democrats who are pissed about the ways in which Republicans have gotten people on the Supreme Court, uh, whether it's Republicans who are, you know, the Kentucky governor's race, the the, the governor who lost by 5,000 votes, it was a close race, isn't conceding. And in fact, is challenging the election. And there's some evidence that Republicans in the state house might try to sort of find other ways around it. So I, I do see as we sort of as this gets more bitter and more, again, enemy oriented as opposed to rival oriented, then we start to dig in and, and, and we start to turn on the, on the rules, right? We're going to, we're going to do what we can to stay in power. Um, and that's a, I mean, I, I know that we have been at points like that in American history before, but this feels, you know, in modern history, it feels like we're at a pretty bad place. <laughs> Winning is the most important thing at this point, not how you win if you have to bend the rules. I mean, you see this again on both sides. You see the Democrats desperate to get uh, to get a president in office for the Supreme Court. And I understand that motivation, right? There are real policy differences there. But the idea that the other is so dangerous and when, and, when and you don't like view you said, it as policy enemy. differences, when you view it as the op- the opposition is evil, right? When they're bad, then then, yeah. you know, twisting the rules to make sure you stay in power becomes important because you have to defeat the other side. And, and that's that that partisan. That's the part that really concerns me. And it's hard to come back from that, right? Once you've othered the other side, once they're the enemy, it's hard to come back and say, oh, we can all get along and let's be, you know, bipartisan. That that just, it doesn't happen for, I mean, it takes generations. This is, this to, is why you like Facebook that. so much, I, I right, mean, Nick? 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened ever, ever, ever in, in human society. Um, I, I mean, there there has to be some sort of mechanism that not necessarily both part. I, I think parties should be completely separate from the the um, the process at this point because they can't be trusted to to give uh, a a middle of the road opinion on anything. There has to be some mechanism to bring as much as populism is is a, a, a bad word and and looked at negatively. Um, there has to be a way to bring in more moderate voices in American society that go beyond the, the structures of our representative government, which doesn't represent us uh, in, in any capacity um, and away from, you know, the, the hyper-partisan uh, narratives that get presented uh, in the mainstream media and social media. We, they need to give us an opportunity to have influence over the system. I think people feel powerless that we're just, part of a system that doesn't take any of our opinions into account. Again, whether you're talking about from the left or the right. Um, so something, something drastic needs to happen. And I don't think that it's, well, it's going to, unfortunately. It's, I'm beating a dead horse here, but I've, you know, gerrymandering is I think at the core of so much of this because it, it reinforces these, these extremes and, and the sense that if you lose, it's, I mean, I just, there are, there are really practical things we could do to tamp down some of this. It, the it perception is, it of is the why the rules really matter because, you know, the whole idea of American politics, and you talk about this with British politics as well, it's based on the idea of the loyal opposition, right? Which is that we lost this election, but we're going to stay and we're going to play the game and we're going to be good sports because in two years or in four years, there's going to be another election and we'll have a chance to win. But if you start to feel like the system is is rigged against you through gerrymandering or through whatever, through disenfranchisement or whatever else, that's when people start to turn on the system, right? The idea of we're going to stand by. And even though the side that, that, that one is not my side. I'm okay with that for two years because I'm going to have another chance. If you don't feel like your chance is actually a realistic chance, that's when people start to give up on the system. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's scary. Democracy, not just in the United States, but around the world is at a precarious moment, right? It, it really is important over the next 25 years that there's a real commitment to the idea of democracy, not just partisanship and not just, you know, I'm the one in power right now. I mean, it's this comparative politics teaches us that if you get this cycle of vengeance and you're in power and you're going to stick it to the other this guy, is, this that is why doesn't you're a big supporter of well. Marianne Williamson and her policy of love conquering all right, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> that was good. We needed to end on a high note. <laughs> Oh, my. Love, love does love, go a long though. way, Phil, though. It's, you know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, on that note, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, if you guys uh, like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter, uh, Barstool Paul, P-O-L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we, that we try, you can find on Untapped on uh, iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics. Uh, and then the podcast itself, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, we always appreciate it when you guys uh, share us, review us, like us through there. Um, and if you weren't here at the beginning, get your tickets or just show up at the door Live two weeks from show. tonight. Wednesday, November 20th, 6.30 p.m. Uh, here in Naperville uh, on North Central's campus. We are doing a live show. 
with uh, the three of us, as well as uh, Suzanne and uh, Tom. Uh, so please come out for that. Uh, we're going to take listener questions. We're going to have plenty of topics to talk about and uh, just kind of have a, a fun night with, with all of you guys. Um, like I said, uh, at the beginning, it's completely free. If you guys want to share the event, uh, there is an, uh, uh, a page on Eventbrite. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. It'll have all the information, time, location, anything like that. You can get tickets through there. Um, they're completely free. Uh, it just kind of helps us get a headcount uh, if you want to do that. Um, but either way, just show up. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely enjoy doing that with you guys. Um, anything else that I missed? No. Awesome. Well, we will see you Cheers. guys next week then. Shut up. Cheers. Bye.